our passage this morning is taken from the Acts of the Apostles, or rather, as we see, the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 2, verses 22 to 41. Acts 2, 22 to 41. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me. For he's at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also shall dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life and you will make me full of gladness in your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. That he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of him were all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you are yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David does not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all those of the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we then do? Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. This is the word of our Lord. May he add his eternal truths and apply them to our hearts for his glory this morning. Please be seated. And let's pray again together. Our great and glorious God, we praise you for the gospel. We praise you, Lord, for the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Son, who took on human flesh and dwelt in the midst of a sinful creation. We praise you, Lord, for his perfect and holy obedience to all of your law. We praise you that he was obedient even to the point of death on a cross. But we know, Lord Jesus, you did not die for your own sins, for you were sinless. You died for the sins of your people. And we praise you, Lord, that even as we remember your death for our sins, we praise you, Lord, that three days later you rose from the grave, victorious over sin and death and hell, not just victorious for your sake, but victorious for our sake. 
For in your death, we have received life. And in your resurrection, we have justification. And Lord Jesus, we praise you that you have ascended and that you now dwell with the Father and that you are enthroned with him on high and that you have sent your spirit to work in the hearts of your people, regenerating them, regenerating us into new life in Christ. For it's in your name we pray. Amen. A number of years ago, I set out to read Leo Tolstoy's War and Peace. It's widely considered to be one of the best novels ever written. Uh, but with over 500,000 words, it's also one of the longest novels ever written. It depicts life among the members of Russia's aristocracy in the, the lead-up to the, the invasion of, of, Ru of Russia by Napoleon during the 19th, early 19th century. It's a masterful work. The characters continue to grow and develop as the events swirl around the invasion of Napoleon, as the characters grow and, and mature. And I felt like I connected personally with Prince Andrei Nikolaevich Bolkonsky, and especially with his friend Count Pyotr Kulevich Bezikov, two of the book's main characters. But as the second volume draws to a close, Napoleon's armies enter into Moscow to find it in flames. The Moscovites had actually set their city on fire so that it would burn and so Napoleon could not enjoy the spoils of war. And Pyotr, after rescuing a young Armenian girl from French forces, is taken prisoner. And Andre, mortally wounded in battle, is, is tended to by the love of his life, Natasha, but slowly dies. I finished the volume and, and put the book down. And I thought, this is one of the greatest novels that's ever been written? What a depressing ending. There's absolutely no resolution. It just ends suddenly. I was just disappointed by the time that I felt I'd wasted as, as much as, as with the ending of the book. But then several months later, I discovered that there's actually a third volume. The book had not ended as I had thought it ended. There's a lot more that was written. Now, I'm not going to spoil it for you, but the ending is marvelous. It is well worth the investment of time. But I learned a lesson there. Don't judge the story by the middle. But we know that war and peace is fiction. There's plenty enough pain in real life. Maybe plenty enough pain in your life. Maybe you feel like your life is a depressing novel with no resolution. Sometimes I feel like COVID is a depressing novel with no resolution. That's not all that's going on in people's lives. People are still fighting cancer. People are still facing grief. People are still struggling with financial strife. People are still mired in relational conflict. People are still battling sin. But take heart. You're not alone in your trials. You're not alone in your trials. Maybe it feels like your trials will never end. But don't judge the story by the middle. You won't find the solution in the end of this particular trial. It's in remembering how the story really ends. Consider how your story ends. If you want to find hope in your trials, I would encourage you to open your Bible and begin to read. You will not have to read very long before you encounter real people in real trials. 
and all of whom were tempted to judge the story by the middle. We have Abraham trudging up Mount Moriah, each step a step closer to the sacrifice of his son. Naomi and Ruth, widowed and destitute in Moab. Job losing everything, even his children, then stricken with sores from head to toe. Hezekiah and Israel besieged by the Assyrian army with its 185,000 men. Daniel in the lion's den. Peter denying the Lord. Paul and Silas in prison. Now we know how all of these stories ended. We see how God used every single one of them for his glory and for the good of his people. But today there's one other story that is in the forefront of our minds. One event in which the characters were tempted to judge the story by the middle. Of course, I'm speaking of the death of Jesus Christ. Think what was going through the mind of the disciples between the crucifixion and that first resurrection Sunday. The Lord had died. He was in the tomb. They gave up. They went back to what they were doing before. Even though Jesus had told them again and again how the story was going to end, they didn't believe him. They judged the story by the middle. But we know what happened. We know that Sunday came. We know the Lord was dead, but he did not stay dead. On the third day, he rose from the grave. He's with the disciples then for 40 days, teaching them and, and ministering to them. He, he promised that though even though he would depart, he would send them his Holy Spirit, who would work in and through them. And then nine days later, nine days after the ascension had happened, 49 days after the resurrection, it was the day of Pentecost, 50 days after the Passover, Jews had gathered from all over to celebrate Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks, at the, the time of the harvest of wheat. The apostles were gathered together in the upper room and, and tongues of fire appeared over their heads and they, they began to speak in other tongues. And the assembled Jews from all the different nations that had gathered miraculously heard them as though they were speaking in their own language. It's as though I would, would speak in, in a, for the assembly of the United Nations. And without any translators, I would speak and all of the people in, from their countries would understand what I was saying. This was a miracle. And many of the people who had gathered there wondered what this was all about, but, but some mocked and, and accused them of being drunk. And then Peter stood up and began to preach. And he addressed the crowd directly. He said, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. Now remember, this is the same Peter who not long prior had been so timid, so terrified, that he denied that he knew Christ even before a servant girl. And now he's proclaiming of the same Lord Jesus Christ in front of thousands of people. Clearly the Holy Spirit was at work. And Peter declared that the work of the Holy Spirit that they had seen was the fulfillment of end times prophecy. He used an extended quote from the prophet Joel and concluded with Joel 2.32. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And then now in the second half of his sermon, Jesus, or Peter rather, sets out to demonstrate that the Lord that they must call on to be saved is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. 
And he tells them in, in light of who Jesus is and in light of, of his resurrection, what they had done and what they must do. So in verses 22 and 23, we're going to see who crucified Jesus. And then in verses 24 to 36, we're going to see who raised Jesus. And then in verses 37 to 41, we're going to see who receives Jesus. So first of all, who crucified Jesus? Verses 22 and 23. Peter addresses the assembled crowd again directly. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. They knew. Many of them had, had seen and heard Jesus for themselves. Many of them had been witnesses to his miracles. Many of them had heard his teaching. But only few of them actually believed in him. So who crucified Jesus? Well, some would say the Jews. Others would say the Romans. But both are correct. Look at the, the second half of verse 23. This Jesus you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So then the Romans killed Jesus. They were the, the lawless men, strangers to God's law, who crucified Jesus. As I described on Friday, the, the crucifixion was the most horrific form of, of execution imaginable. And it was the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, who was the one who handed down the sentence. Even though he declared that he found no guilt in Jesus, he ordered his crucifixion nonetheless. Roman soldiers were the ones who, who mocked Jesus and beat Jesus and whipped him and nailed him to the cross. So yes, the Romans crucified Jesus. The Jews crucified Jesus too. They were the ones who handed Jesus, handed Jesus over to the Romans. From the beginning of Jesus' ministry, the, the scribes and Pharisees, the, the religious leaders, had been there watching, trying to catch Jesus, doing or saying something wrong so they could discredit him and they could kill him. When Pontius Pilate said they had, no, had found no guilt in Jesus, they shouted, crucify him, crucify him. But it wasn't just the leaders, the, the people had been there too. They condemned themselves, crying out, his blood be upon us and upon our children. And so even though these Jews were not the ones who had actually performed the crucifixion, his blood was on their hands. The Jews crucified Jesus. So then who crucified Jesus? The Romans crucified Jesus. The Jews crucified Jesus. But it wasn't just the Romans, and it wasn't just the Jews. You crucified Jesus. His blood is on your hands as well. His blood is on my hands too. And you might like to think that if you had been there, you would have come to his defense. You would have said, no, no, this man is innocent. But you need to understand, it was your sin that led to his death. Isaiah 53, 5 says, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Our transgressions, our iniquities, required the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to C.J. Mahaney. Were you there when they crucified my Lord, the old spiritual asks? We must answer, yes, we were there. 
Not as spectators only, but as participants, guilty participants, plotting, scheming, betraying, denying, and handing him over to be crucified. We may try to wash our hands of responsibility like Pilate, but our attempt would be futile. Before we could begin to see the cross as something done for us, leading us to faith and worship, we have to see it as something done by us, leading to repentance. Only the man or woman who is prepared to own his share in the guilt of the cross may claim his share in its grace. Are you willing to acknowledge your guilt? Are you willing to acknowledge that Jesus Christ died for your sins? Are you willing to put your faith in him and turn from your sins? So who crucified Jesus? The Romans, the Jews, and you. But there's someone else who's responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus. And you might be shocked. Look now at the first part of verse 23 of chapter 2 in Acts. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Jesus was delivered up according to God's sovereign, eternal plan. In eternity past, this was the plan of salvation. This is the covenant of grace. The covenant of redemption, rather. In Isaiah 53.10, we read, It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Jesus died as our substitute. He bore the wrath of God in place of his people, in his sinless body on the cross. It was the only way sinful people like you and me could be saved. Someone had to die in our place, and that someone had to be the sinless substitute. It could only be the Lord Jesus Christ, truly God and truly man, who could be the sufficient sacrifice for infinite sin. Liberals like Stephen Chalk and, and Brian McLaren stumble at this. They blasphemy, refer, refer to the punishment of Christ from the Father in our place as cosmic child abuse. But Jesus Christ, God the Son, one with the Father, went freely to the cross out of love for his Father and out of love for his people because he know that, knew that it was only through his death that his people could be saved. He had to bear God's wrath for our sins. The testimony of Scripture is clear. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that him we could become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 Men crucified Jesus, but all of this was according to God's sovereign plan. This has to be one of the most profound displays of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility in all the Scriptures. So who crucified Jesus? The Romans. The Jews, you, and God. But praise God, the story does not end there. And Peter's sermon doesn't end there either. Peter now goes on to prove that Jesus was indeed the Messiah by telling us who raised Jesus in verses 24 to 36. Verse 24. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So the crucifixion was God's plan, and so was the resurrection. God raised Jesus from the dead on the third day. F.F. F. Bruce says that the sentence passed 
on Jesus by an earthly court and executed by Roman soldiers had been reversed, Peter asserts, by a higher court. If his suffering and death were ordained by the determinate counsel of God, so were his, re his resurrection and his glory. This makes me want to think. I hope it does you too. Every morning, Pastor Joshua said to me this morning, every, every morning, the first thing I do is, is, is Resurrection Sunday morning is listen to, to Keith Green and his resurrection song, Joy to the World, He is Risen, Hallelujah! He is Risen, Hallelujah! I can't hit the notes that, that Keith Green does, but I really encourage you to listen to it yourself. Peter goes on to quote Psalm 16, showing us that, that though he was this that this psalm was written over a thousand years prior by King David, it points clearly to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. Peter points out that it, it, he couldn't have been referring to himself. David could not have been referring to himself because David had died. David's tomb was, was still there in Jerusalem. So in verse 32, Peter says again, this Jesus God raised up. And he declares that, that he and those who are with him are all witnesses. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 15, 5 and 6, we see that, it, that the risen Christ had appeared to Peter, to the twelve, and to more than 500 eyewitnesses. Now Peter tells the assembled crowd that they, too, are witnesses. As he speaks of Christ's exaltation. Now he exalted the right hand of God. Having received the promise of the Holy Spirit from the Father, Christ now from his exalted state pours out the Spirit upon his people. He's referring to the event that, that was the occasion of this message. This is what the people were witnessing. The crowds again and miraculously heard these men speaking as though they were speaking in their own native tongues. And this was a work of the Holy Spirit given by the exalted Christ. Peter's bold proclamation is also a work of the Holy Spirit given by the exalted Christ. And when you proclaim the gospel, your bold pro proclamation is a work of the Holy Spirit given by the exalted Christ. Well, then in verses 34 and 35, Peter quotes another psalm, another psalm of David, Psalm 110. This is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. And again, it clearly points to Jesus Christ. David himself did not ascend to the heavens, but he says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now we know that, that Jesus already reigns. But we are here now, between the already and the not yet, awaiting his final victory. Jesus crushed the serpent's head on the cross, even though he himself had his heel bruised. Nevertheless, victory was won. Jesus died, but in his death, he was victorious over death. Yes, God raised Jesus from the dead, but Jesus raised Jesus from the dead too. As he declares in John 10, 18, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. For this I have received, this charge I have received from my Father. So Jesus defeated death, when he defeated his own death. And he will fully and finally destroy death. Read about this in 1 Corinthians 15.26. He will destroy death and all of his enemies upon his return, on the day of the Lord, on Judgment Day. 
And that is the end of the story. Peter closes in verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God had made, has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Again, it's not just the Romans. It's not just the Jews. You crucified Jesus. But thankfully, the end of the story hasn't happened yet. So what are you going to do about it? Who receives Jesus? In verses 37 to 41, the crowds heard Peter's pronouncement and they were cut to the heart. They understood Peter's point. They knew their guilt. They knew that it was not just the Romans who were guilty. They knew that it wasn't just the religious authorities who were guilty. They knew that they were guilty. Even though they had not been the ones who cried out, crucify him, they were guilty, all of them. They took it personally because it was personal. They understood the guilt and they understood their condition and they were desperate. So they asked Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter told them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent and be baptized. This is a command that's often repeated in the apostolic preaching of Acts. Repentance is a change of heart that leads to a change in behavior. It's an, an internal and an external turning away from sin and turning to God. And, and repentance is linked to baptism in the name of Jesus Christ. Baptism is an allegiance to Jesus. It's an expression of faith and a commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. Luke tells us, that this was only an excerpt of Peter's sermon, for with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. You too live in a crooked generation. You too must flee to Christ for salvation. About 3,000 of those who heard Peter's message received his word, repented, and were baptized. 3,000 people. 3,000 were added to the church as they responded to that one sermon. Enabling the disciples to speak in tongues and for Peter to preach the sermon was not the only work of the Spirit on that day. The Holy Spirit was at work in people's hearts, bringing conviction, bringing regeneration, bringing faith, bringing repentance, and bringing salvation. The death of Jesus Christ wasn't the end of the story. Neither was his resurrection. Neither was his ascension. The story concluded with Peter and the rest of the apostles. And it continues with you and will continue until Christ's return. So what is your response? What is your response to, to Peter's sermon? What is your response to this sermon? Are you one of those who's been added to the church? This is the story of the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ part of your story. It's a story that you need to remember, not just on Resurrection Sunday, not just on every Sunday, but every day. And if you were in Christ, your story is guaranteed to have the happiest of all endings. Those 3,000 people are now with Jesus in heaven. And if you respond to Jesus in repentance and faith, one day you will join them. 
That's the end of your story. And it's also just the beginning. Let's pray together. Once again, Lord God, we praise you for the gospel. Lord, for a crucified and risen and ascended Savior who sends the Holy Spirit to work in hearts, regenerating them unto new life in Christ. And we pray, Lord, confident that your Holy Spirit is still working, still granting new life in Christ and still sanctifying your people Lord, we pray that you would help us to never forget the gospel. But Lord, to repeat the gospel, to preach the gospel to ourselves and to anyone else who would listen as often as possible. Lord, help us to remember your story. Help us, Lord, to incorporate your story into our story so that we can look forward to a new story with you in heaven. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.